Well, like many of you, I've been thinking about 9-11 a lot this week. In light of this morning and um, this morning's message, it's interesting to think that by uh, 10, 28 this morning, the whole thing will be done. So in about an hour and 34 minutes, the whole events of 9-11 took place. And uh, right now, the Pentagon is about to get hit if you were kind of placing it in your morning. I was thinking, in, in the process of thinking about it, um, I realized um, that most of my adult life has been shaped by 9-11, and I had never really appreciated that before. Um, I answered my call to ministry before the Lord two weeks about before 9-11. I responded to the Lord and committed to Him uh, to come into ministry I entered uh, the fighter squadron that I belonged to in Philadelphia in the, fir- the end of the first week of September 2001. So my first memory in that squadron is 9-11. Uh, most of the guys in my squadron were, were airline pilots stationed out of New York City. So there was actually about uh, 12 hours where we did not even know if they were the pilots of the airplanes. Uh, there was a great concern. Within about a month and a half of 9-11, about 70% of the squadron was furloughed and unemployed. So their whole worlds were turned upside down. And since then, we've been deployed four times uh, to Afghanistan and Iraq. And, and I didn't even realize that all of the, my, so much of my adult life has been shaped uh, by this event. You know, so I've realized my life changed 10 years ago, and I'm sure your life changed as well. Uh, but I don't know what 9-11 means to you. All week I've had, I've been listening to what 9-11 means to this person or that person, and, and it's different. And so this morning, what I don't want to do is project into you what 9-11 means for me or, or assume that we had a similar experience. Um, I think our experiences are, are quite varied across this room and across our country. Um, and I kind of want, I want to honor that, and so I'm going to I'm going to work to use care uh, in the way I talk about this event. But what I would like to do this morning is make some very general observations about uh, what 9/11 has done to our country, and then bring those ideas uh, and re- and allow the the Word of God to reflect on them, and and then to take both of those, take the Word of God and 9/11 and then begin to kind of wrestle more with the idea of trauma. How do, how do we deal with trauma in our life? And most, more specifically, how do we deal with trauma in the long term? We have a fairly good grasp on how to deal with trauma in the short term. If there's a death in the family, there's people show up, and they give you a hug, and they bring you meals, and they cry with you, and they send you cards, and they come to the funeral, and they call a week later, but 10 years after the funeral, you're left alone dealing with the loss. And so this morning, I, I want us to kind of think about trauma, not in the near-term experience. We, that's pretty familiar to all of us, and we have ways of dealing with it, but more in the long term when, when everyone else kind of forgets about what happened in your life and you're kind of left to wrestle with it by yourself. Would you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8, which is page 341 if you're using one of the ones provided for you. 
I want to be very careful about one idea this morning. We're going to be reading in the book about um, the Hebrew people coming back out of exile and them dealing with their sinfulness and that being kind of the catalyst behind their trauma. My, I make no implication at all this morning that, that the United States is God's people. I'm not implying this. Or that the 9-11 was some kind of divine judgment against God's people for a certain kind of sin. That's, I have, don't have the authority to do that. It's beyond me. That's not my implication. This morning I'm dealing with trauma. So avoid making that connection uh, as we read through the word. It may be there, but uh, that belongs to God. As we pick up in the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, here's, here's where we are in the story of the Israelites. They're just now returning from 70 years of bondage and exile uh, in the east. The Hebrew people, they were, they were sinful and they were wicked before the Lord. They forgot about him and they turned from him. And because of that, the Lord orchestrated and allowed uh, the Babylonians to come in and to defeat the Israelites and to drag them off into exile. And we're entering the story 70 years later as the Israelites return to Jerusalem. And as they, for the first time in their lives, for most of them, as they look at the big temple of God in rubble on the ground, and they see the walls of their city torn down, and they see just their, their city, the city of God in decay, and the kingdom of God annihilated, and the farmland is overgrown, and we're picking up in the story of God's people as they're sorting through the wreckage of their city, trying to, trying to put things together. You might imagine that they're not simply sorting through the wreckage of the city, but they're kind of sorting through the spiritual wreckage that you have whenever there's a trauma, right? The, the, the rubble and the wreckage that's in your spirit of the kind of, why would God do this? What am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed to go on from here? All of these sorts of ideas. You can only imagine that they're, they're going through those ideas in, in their heart just like they are with their own eyes. You know, you might imagine it would look like Haiti after an earthquake. This, the Babylonians were dead set that this city would be uninhabitable. And here they are back 70 years later. And we'll pick up and we'll read uh, about eight verses. I'm going to read the sentence before chapter 8 and continue. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a lot of people. Uh, I practiced and I failed. I'll continue in verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. 
And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, some more people, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. I think this is a precious text of the Bible. I just love this text because it has this, this discouraged return. I mean, so they're happy to be coming home, but they come home and they see the wreckage of the city. And yet, in all of that wreckage, Ezra and the, the scribe and the priests, they begin to preach. It's not, they're simple, not simply reading the law. Did you hear what it said? It said he began to, they began to teach and explain so that people could understand. They even built a pulpit for him, right? They built this platform so he could get up above the people and pronounce the truth of God. And he's reciting the law of God to the people. And there's this, this large, profound worship service. And it's men and it's women and it's children, it says. Men and women and anyone who could understand. It's people, who are coming to hear for possibly the first time, almost certainly the first time in their entire life, the words of God over them. That's what they're hearing. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of God. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink and send some to those who have nothing prepared. The day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you you hear what's happening here is as the people are hearing the law of God, the whys and the hows are being answered for them. And it, it makes them weep. Because they realize that the reason they were thrown into exile and the reason the house of God has been reduced to rubble and the reason the walls have been pulled down and the reasons their houses have been destroyed and their fields have been taken over and the reason for all of this disaster was the sinfulness of their forefathers. That's what, as they hear the stipulations of the covenant, as they hear God out of Deuteronomy, you would imagine it's probably Deuteronomy that's being read. As Deuteronomy is being read that if you do this, I will do this. But if you do this, I will most certainly do this. And as that's being read, the people begin to weep. But Ezra and the leaders, they stand up and they say, don't weep and don't grieve because this is a good day. Because as difficult as it is for them to hear For the first time in 70 years, a Hebrew has been able to stand among his own people and read the truth of God to his own people in broad daylight and to pronounce God's word over them all. This is supposed to be just the ability to do that is this wonderful, glorious experience. And so so the, the leaders are saying we're celebrating the fact that we can now actually be Israelite. Don't weep. Go and celebrate. And so what happens, and I'm going to begin to paraphrase, is they do. They go off to celebrate, and Ezra and, and, and the scribes and the priests, they continue to read, and lo and behold, they find this out. They discover this. They're reading, and they realize that the seventh month, in the seventh month, is a very special festival, a feast, a feast called the Feast of Booths, or the Festival of Tabernacles. 
And they realized the serendipity of it all is they're there. They look at their calendars and they realize that they are in the seventh month. They discover, lo and behold, we're in the seventh month. We can have this festival. And this festival is a festival that was celebrated by the Hebrew people to remind them that even though they wandered through the wilderness, God was with them. When God said, I want you to do this so that you remember that when you had nothing and you lived in a tent, I lived in a tent right beside you. How appropriate a holiday for people who have returned to a land with nothing. And so they send the call out and they tell everybody. They say, go out and get your palms and get your branches and come in and come to the city because we're going to have the festival of booths. And if you read here in the 16th verse, this is what happens. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs and in the courtyard and in the court, courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And there was joy was very great. And then something happens. The the eighth day, the day that follows the festival is a day of sacred assembly where they do no work. It's a holy day set to the Lord. And so on this eighth day to follow, they set aside this, this day of sacred assembly and they set it to worship and confession. And the ninth chapter says that they spent the first quarter of the day hearing the word read. And then they spent the second quarter of the day in confession and in worship. And this is the prayer. The, the, the priests get up and they begin to pray this high holy prayer that's listed. And it's, it's too long to read, but it's listed here in the ninth chapter. And just to give you a feel of the, of the, of the tenor of the prayer, just listen as I read the first sentence of each, each paragraph or so. I'll begin here in, in the bottom of verse 5 of chapter 9. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all. All blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made heaven, the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. It's it's as though they read Genesis. And then the next verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And look at 9. You saw the suffering of their forefathers. They're walking through the word that they've just been hearing. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. Look at 13. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. Look at 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. And they did not obey your command. But 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. That's such a tough word sentence. 28, but as soon as they were at rest, they did again what was evil in your sight. 29, you warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. 
32. Now therefore, this is a long sentence. Now therefore, O O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and our leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. Verse 36. But see... We are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave your forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. And then they do this. It's so unimaginably good in my mind. In chapter 10, they reaffirm the covenant of God with God. They gather as a people and they reaffirm. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, to bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, decrees of the Lord our God. And there's three major things they commit to. Three definitional things that it means to be the people of God. And here's the first one. The first one is verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. The first idea that they kind of recognize as being a major violation of the law was the fact that they had intermarried and become impure and that they had allowed to sink themselves to synchronize all the different ways of the world. And they said, we're not doing that. By oath, we will never do that again. Here's the second thing they said, verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and we will cancel all debts. The second major idea that they thought is, is we will observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. And here's the third one. And the third one actually fills up the rest of the chapter. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings of the Sabbath, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. And it continues to go down. The third idea that they they said is we will tithe and support the functions at the temple so that the sacrificial system can continue. Those are the three things that they kind of summarized what it means to be a Hebrew, what it means to be a covenantal member of of God's family. They said we will will not marry outside the, the family of God. We will honor the Sabbath and we will tithe and preserve the ritual sacrificial system at the temple. It's like revival. It's profound revival. This renewed spirituality, this confession time, this time of returning and repentance and drawing near and this desire for righteousness. And I have to say, I think we saw this on 9-12. Not this profound, right? But I think when the dust had settled and we were looking at the rubble, 
I'm talking at a national perspective. It was like the United States just leaned a little closer to God. That people could pray in schools. People could talk about their faith. People were looking for faith. There was, at the moment it happened, at the time of crisis, on the short term, just like the Hebrew people, on the short term, at this moment of crisis, this kind of leaning, bending an ear towards the Lord, as though God had kind of shaken things up, and when he had kind of shaken up their spirituality, not only did he shake their spirituality in the sense of them asking difficult questions, which draws you to the Lord, but he shook spirituality in the sense of awakening spirituality, waking it up so that people were asking questions about mortality, questions about evil and good, questions about who are we. In fact, for us, the very act that brought the buildings down was a religious act, which drew us immediately into the spiritual realm. We saw this on 9-12, and we see this in nearly every trauma that happens in our lives. Someone loses a loved one. They bend in towards the Lord. They have questions. Someone has a separation that's very painful, and they are going, where is God in all of this? And they're not simply saying, where is God in all of this, to pronounce that they've been abandoned. They want to feel God. They want to feel the presence of God in all of this. We do this the day after trauma, the month after trauma. We bend in towards the Lord. And this is when we have those things to say in our story. Like, I was never as close to the Lord as when, right? The season after some, some kind of difficult time. We have this closeness with the Father. Trauma sends us looking. We see it in the text. We see it in our own lives. We see it on 9-12. What about 10 years later? Let's read. Turn to the 13th chapter. So Nehemiah had to go on a trip. The, The emperor of Persia called him back to the capital, and so he went back to serve the emperor of Persia. And while he was serving in the court of the king, at one point he felt the conviction of the Lord that he should ask to go back home. And so he says to the king, can I go home? And the king said, yeah, you can go home. And he returns home. And when he returns home, he's met. His first sight that he sees is that a prominent Ammonite has been given the privilege of storing his goods in a room that is reserved for the sacred things of God. That's just kind of his first, when I got home, this is what I saw. And so he kind of sets this right. And then this is, this is what it says. And, and, and I'm, I'm gleaning all this, by the way, from verses 6 and on. You'll see in verse 6 it says, But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Sometimes later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And then he begins to talk about this issue with the room. But look at verse 10. Ten and eleven. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. 
So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. Do you see what had happened? He goes, he goes away and he comes back. And in, during that time, however many years, we don't know how many years it was, some period of time. During that time, their covenantal agreement, their, their big reform and, and their, the revival that says, we will never forsake the caring for the temple and the tithing to the storehouses of God. Somehow, nothing came. And the priests are now farming because they can't afford to live under the hand of the, of the Israelites. Something else happens. Look at 15. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Something else happened. Look at verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down upon them. The great revival in the book of Nehemiah, we will, we will honor the Sabbath, we will not intermarry, and we will honor the tithing to the storehouses. All three of those few years down the road, five, six, maybe ten years down the road, they come back and none of it is being observed. The people look exactly like they did before the exile. Do you remember that traumatic season in your life? That time when that thing happened and you came very close to the Lord and you learned a lot about yourself and you said things will be different. I won't ever doubt the Lord again or, you know, he's been my, my rock. I won't, I won't, I'll have hope throughout these things. You remember that? Long time ago? We don't really count it as remembering, just to remember the event. It's not enough to remember the event. When you're trying to remember trauma in the long term, you need to remember what happened to you. You can't simply, it's not enough to simply remember what happened. You need, our responsibility is to say, what in all that did God do to me? And how did he change? Because otherwise, time will pass and the, and the changes will not persist. That's what's at work here. We certainly see that with regards to 9-11. On 9-12, the country leaned in. Ten years, it looks like 9-10. For the most part. 
But having a memory alone is, is not sufficient. So there's some of, some of you who will say, I do remember. I do remember what happened. And I'm not just talking about 9-11. I'm talking about the trauma, right? For some of you, 9-11 is, is small compared to a spouse leaving you or a loved one passing away or a debilitating illness or the loss of a job or brutal honesty, just learning something about yourself, the traumatic experience of honesty in your life. Right, whatever all, and that is, for some of you, that's what sits there. That's what's kind of between you and the rest uh, of, that's, that's what shapes your life and defines it. And for some of you, you're saying, I'm not forgetting. The last thing I'll ever do is forget, and I hear that. But I, I would suggest maybe you're not remembering rightly. We don't simply have the charge to remember. We have to remember, we have to have a gospel memory as Christians as Christians were compelled and commanded to have a gospel memory of things. And here are, here are some ways that, that we fail in this. Sometimes I think we have what, what I might call a, a victim's memory to trauma. That something traumatic hits, and the way we continue and choose to remember it is to remember ourselves as the victim of some kind of wrongdoing or crime. And that's how we, it kind of cements in our psyche as... We, we were wronged, right? And this fosters anger and revenge and hatred and bitterness and all these sort of things because we're like, heck yeah, I remember. You bet I remember because there's this big deficit in my life that I'm still owed. And that's kind of the way you've chosen to remember this. You've decided that you're going to kind of hold on to this memory because by golly, you're the victim, And when you get to heaven, you want to make sure it's in your memory so that you can give it to God and find out what he's going to do for it or figure out why he hasn't done anything for it. You see this with 9-11. There's a decided increase in racism towards people that look like they're from the Middle East. Is there not? That's That's how some people have chosen to reconcile this is I'm, you bet I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember those people. Right? We do, this happens in life. Right? There's a loss, an inexplainable loss, child taken from you, something that was done out of its time, and people say, well, I'm done with God. Right? That becomes definitional to them. I'm done with God. The fact that he would do that, because the death, what, he's, what has been taken is what you've decided to remember, is your status as a victim. Your spouse leaves you, what do you remember? You, you just remember, you felt cheated and you just hold bitterness and unforgiveness. And you're not going to let go of that because it was the biggest thing that's ever happened in your life and, you, and you've chosen, maybe not consciously, but your life has chosen not to release the status of victim. You are, in fact, held bondage by the trauma. You are still captive to the trauma. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has not been allowed to work in your life. Because you're holding on to it and you're not allowing the gospel to push through. What you're ultimately saying is, there is a mistake that has happened in my life. That God has made a mistake and he does not have a purpose. When you hold on to something like this and you say, and with anger and with bitterness and with rage, you're telling God he's made a mistake. But God has come to set us free, has he not? 
God's come in all circumstances to say, what your deficit has been covered up by my abundant blessing. Right? How can you hold tightly onto that when I have baptized you with this? How can you complain about this loss when I've offered you this great gain? The gospel of Jesus Christ demands that the things and possessions of this world, the deficits and the debts and the things that we've experienced and the injustice and all these sorts of things that we have, the gospel demands that we slowly begin to let them go because of our insurpassing richness of the eternal kingdom of God. That we say, have it. And through giving it back to the world, we preach life. Being able to forgive What this world cannot forgive is gospel. Being able to let go and to live when the rest of the world would suffocate is gospel. You need to allow, some of you need to allow the gospel to push through your status as a victim. You are not a victim. Jesus Christ on the cross, that's a victim. You are saved. Let the gospel work. Here's a second way. Second way that we remember things poorly, and it's, I think it's more tragic and uh, more helpless. Some of us cannot forget because some, the scar is too big on us. Like something deep down inside of us gets broken. And you didn't try to, it just happened. That having the world rocked like it was for you that it's just, it's just created a scar. And you can see this. Our country feels less secure today than it did on 9-10. It's just a fact of life. It's, our consciousness is irreparably changed. It just is. There's something about us that's different. I mean, that's how it is kind of from a country perspective. But in people's own lives and their own traumas, right, the ones that have the greatest significance to us, this happens as well, right? When there is an untimely death or an inexplainable death or loss or something, sometimes we just lose the ability to hope in God. It's like I don't even want to begin to hope that he might heal. I don't want to lay myself out there again. And you soon become unable because you prayed, dear Lord, heal them, heal them. Heal them, right? You fasted. Heal them, heal them, heal them. And God took them. And now you've, you, you've lost the ability to hope. Or some of you have lost the ability to trust because the betrayal was so great. And you simply can't trust anymore. Some of you have had relationships t- so twisted up that you've lost the ability to really kind of love with affection because of things that were done to you. And I'm not here to demean that, and I'm not here to minimize it. I'm here to say that the gospel demands the right to work through that. That you're not allowing the gospel to progress through your life and to begin to work through these things. That we do not live and worship a God who is short on hope or God who is short on trust, or God who is short on giving us these things that we de- desperately need. You can trust in the Father. You can hope in the Lord. That is the source of our strength. And you need to slowly, slowly but consciously begin to demand in your life that the gospel has the right to come in and inhabit places that used to have big buildings but are now let vacant.
We need to let the gospel work. Being Christian does not mean that we're going to escape trauma. It certainly does not mean that we put a nice, happy spin on trauma. That's not what it means to be Christian. When trauma hits, you weep and you mourn and you grieve like people do because we're people. Did did Jesus not weep at the deaths of Lazarus? Be human amidst trauma. But through it all, faith commits us to this idea. Faith commits us to the fact that God is changing us and that he has a purpose. To be a Christian is to say God has not made a mistake and God is not asleep. When there's trauma, he, listen to this, he has not made a mistake. And he is not asleep. He cares, he's watching, he has a purpose, and he's changing you. I don't know what he's changing you into be. You will likely not know for a very long time, and people around you will likely know before you know. But we have to trust that God did not make a mistake and that he is not asleep.